Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you, Lord, for your means of grace, your scriptures. We do pray as we uh, continue to look at the perseverance of the saints that we would see our security is not in jeopardy, yet these warnings are real, that we must persevere and not depart from Christ. We also help, we ask for help, Lord, in understanding uh, the word so that we may live according to your terms. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so I want to begin by just reminding you, I know it's been a couple of weeks, we are finishing the very last part of our systematic theology. Uh, the title of the whole message has been, Are You a Calvinist? And if you remember in the beginning, we explained where we differed with Calvin and Reformed theology, and then we finished where, where we agree. And we, by and large, agree on the doctrines of grace. I shouldn't say by and large, we do agree. And so I was going through an acronym called TULIP, which is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace. And the final one was perseverance of the saints. And I want you to remember why I like that term better. A lot of times people will use the term once saved, always saved. But the implication behind that can be, doesn't necessarily mean this, but sometimes people mean by that, that once you come forward and commit yourself to Christ, the language that they use, you can live any way you want. Well, that's not the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints means that a true believer who genuinely trusts in Christ will remain trusting in Christ all of their days and will live therefore accordingly. That doesn't mean that we don't sin, doesn't mean we don't falter, but the true believer does not claim the right to keep living in sin. Sin will genuinely bother them and they will repent at some point and turn back to following Christ. So. We were looking at warning passages in Hebrews. And if you remember, the Hebrews passages showed us that, yes, we really have to persevere in the faith. However, we concluded that genuine believers are going to be those who take the warnings from Scripture and we are going to acquiesce to them. So, yeah, I can't depart from Christ. I have to remain within Him. But I want to give you two more warning passages that oftentimes Arminians will use to try to claim Christians can lose their salvation. And one of the hot-button passages is found in 2 Peter chapter 2. So let me deal with that, and let's really delve into it. 2 Peter 2, 20 through 21, the Apostle Peter said, For if after they, by the way, the they there are the false teachers, in the context of 2 Peter, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Verse 21, it says, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Now, again, let me just point out with my pointer that the they is, are these false teachers. But notice the language. It seems as if they really genuinely came to saving faith. Notice it says that they had knowledge of the Lord and Savior. Notice it says that they had known the Holy Commandment. They had known those things. And so they did have knowledge. So how do we understand this language, which seems to indicate that these people were genuine believers? Here's how I think we should think of this passage. What's being used here, as the great scholar Thomas Schreiner says, is something called phenomenological language. You all know what that is. Let me explain what it is. When you're watching the weather report and the weatherman says sunrise tomorrow, 
is going to be at 6.07. Do you ever call the TV station and say, listen, you blockhead, don't you realize that the earth is rotating on its axis and it's not that the sun is actually moving, but we are? How are you still linked into this geocentric theory of the solar system? Well, you don't say that because you know that he's talking about the way it appears. When you and I talked about sunrise, we're cognizant of the idea that it's actually the earth rotating, the sun isn't moving, but our point is that that's when we see it. In the same way, Peter is describing people who seem to be Christians. And all outward appearances, they gave a profession that would seem to indicate that they had some knowledge about who Christ was. But as you're going to see, this language that's used of these people who appear to be Christians is something that really shows ultimately that they're not genuine Christians. You're going to see that on the next slide. So again, it appears that they're believers, but they're really not. Now notice in verse 21, this is a key phrase here, because here Peter's talking about the fact that it seems that they knew Christ, right? But then they turned away from the holy commandment. The term there, hupastrepho, means to really to turn back. So I want you to think about the Israelites in the wilderness. They belong to Yahweh by all outward appearances. They seem to be trusting in him, but remember, there was a whole generation that wanted to turn back and go back to Egypt. In the same way, you and I in our Christian walk, we're on our way through the wilderness, on the way to the promised land, heaven, and the risk for us is that we'll turn back, say, I like it back in Egypt better. My, own sin, my old sinful life, the old sinful world. So turning back, the term that you see in red in verse 21 is a term that's used for apostasy. Turning back from Christ and turning away from him in both doctrine and in deed. Why is doctrine always primary? Because you always act on what you truly believe. So let's continue on though. And what I'm going to show you when we get to verse 22 is that the appearance of these people being believers is now shown to be false by Peter. 2 Peter 2.22, because they turned away, they were into apostasy. It says, it has happened to them. According to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in mire. All right, now, Notice here, Peter's describing them, these people who appear to be believers, but notice now he describes them as what? Dogs and sows. And more than likely, if you've read the Bible, you know that dogs and sows are unclean animals in the Old Testament. You know, the Jews didn't have their little cocker spaniel on their beds and little foofy woofy, and they'd be petting them. <laughs> to them, dogs were unclean. And the same obviously goes with pigs, uh, sows, etc. They were part of the animals that were off limits as, fi- as far as their dietary laws were concerned. So the point being is that a dog returning to its own vomit shows that, yes, it appeared maybe they were believers, but then all of a sudden we see that they're really nothing more than this unclean animal, meaning that they're unregenerate. Because they went back to their old life, they went back to their old ways, and it showed that... It shows their true colors is the way that we would put it. Yeah, Brian. Is in verse 21 when it talks about it would be better, um, 
it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Is that also like referring to you know, Jesus talks about degrees of judgment? Yeah. So uh, is that what that's talking Absolutely. about? How different people are judged uh, differently? Right. Do you remember when Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? If the miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. And uh, the point being is, you're right, the greater light that's given, the greater the culpability. So absolutely, these people certainly had knowledge of who Christ was, but at the end of the day, they wanted nothing to do with him. And so there is a greater culpability. Do you remember last time we were talking about this topic, two weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the soils. And in that parable, it's very important because Jesus talks about soils who seem to flourish initially, but then when some trial or tribulation comes, they fall away. Well, that's exactly the type of soil he's being referred to here, I think, in Second Peter. It appeared that they were believers, but they really weren't. Yeah. Uh, your mention of the Greek word, made, I did some quick look yeah. in the Greek. There, I found something interesting. Yeah. In 2 Peter 2, uh, 21, 22, or 20, 21 there, yeah. turn away, is hoopal strepsi. Yeah. Did you say hoopal strepsi? Yeah. Well, if you look at Acts twenty six eighteen, the word for conversion to Christ yeah. is epistrepsi, okay, go. to turn from darkness to light. Yeah. But then when you go to 2 Peter 2.22, epistrepsis is used. So basically you have this to stand. So the hoopo prefix or the epistrepsis yeah. are used by Peter synonymously. Right, right. Okay. The same term term is used for conversion. Yeah, that's right. And so using this phenomenological language, yeah. it's like a reverse conversion. It is. It's conversion back so to So the same word for conversion from darkness to light is used from converting from light to darkness. Yeah. So well said. Great connection, Bob. Um, yeah. So that's just in the Greek. Very good. Yeah, it means to turn. So there's two terms that are used in Greek for this idea of repenting. So if you a lot of times when you read repentance, repent and believe, the term repent will be meta neo. Neo has to do with knowledge. Meta is often after. It's like an afterthought. It's literally the idea of changing your mind. So repentance is the idea of changing your mind, turning from idolatry and turning to God. But a synonym of that that Bob has been showing us is either epistrepho, which is the, the root of the term, or hupastrepho, and Peter uses those interchangeably. So the idea of turning, you're either turning to Christ, or in this instance, they're turning away from him, turning to apostasy. So, yeah, so the idea is what are you turning to? Are you turning to Christ, the Christ of the Bible, or are you turning away from him? Yeah, that's the issue. Yeah. Bob, the opposite that you said, going from the light to the darkness, can you actually be in the light? If we used our... Uh, yeah, uh, we talked about this. I think your your analogy is a good one about yeah. the sun coming up. Yeah, there's two things uh, that we got to keep in mind about this. There's the eternal counsel of God, and there's the before time, beyond the scenes. Right. You know the what God knows and says. Yeah. And there's there, but there's also us living as humans and finite on the earth, interacting with life. Right, right. So like in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, you have the eternal uh, 
panorama laid out yeah. that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. But on the scene of history, we don't know the eternal mind of God about this person or, or that person or even ourselves. We need to look for fruit. Yeah. And we, it's like the relationship to time. Yeah. God is eternal. That's he existed right. before time. But as I said last week, for humans, time has to be understood sequentially because that's the only way we can talk about it or know it. Right. Other than from the perspective of God's eternal uh, counsel, but we don't know that. Right. So if you're one of the disciples, let's just go to the Gospels. Yeah. So here you are, there's 12. But one has a demon, but they don't know. They're all disciples. That Judas really wasn't one of them wasn't revealed right. until it actually happens in time. Yes. God knows all this, but we don't. Right. So from the perspective of the disciples, Judas went from light to darkness. Okay? Great. He turned point. from Christ to go off when the devil entered him and did what he did. We are like that. We're on the scene of history, and that's how we have to deal. Yeah. Unless we already have knowledge of the Lamb's Book of Life before time, which we cannot have. Right. Don't, I, I don't think there's a contradiction. See, what causes people to go into bad theology is they think this is a contradiction. Right, it's not, right. And don't, I, I am not the least bit ashamed, I know Eric isn't, right. to preach every passage for exactly what it says. Amen. And apply it without uh, any apology for what it says. And somebody will say, well, if you're uh, an Arminian, then you can't believe this, or if you're a Calvinist, then you can't believe that, or you can't yeah. preach this, you can't do that. No, we have to preach what it says, That's how right. it says, whatever our designation in somebody's mind is. That's right. So... I would prefer whatever best integrates everything. Yeah, amen. That's exactly right. And I think that's what perseverance does. Yeah, amen. But we don't know who it is who's going to be the dog that returns to the vomit. Exactly right. Uh, Great point, know. Bob. Yeah, so we don't have people, as you look out at the people in the world or even your fellow uh, brothers and sisters, no one has an E on their head for elect. So you, you don't know. What you do, though, is we're called in Matthew 7 to judge teachers by their fruit. And I like to term fruit as their doctrine and deeds. Again, it's, it's not either or, it's both and. If you really believe, you act on it. So in Matthew 7, Jesus tells us to judge them by their fruits, but he doesn't say judge them by their motives. Those things we can't know, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Those things will be revealed at the day. God knows the heart, we don't. So because we don't know the heart, all we can judge people is by their doctrine and their deeds, and those things we rightly can judge. Yes. It has been taught to us about the depravity of man. We, are, we can't really turn anywhere. Uh, it's God who draws us to himself. Amen. Now we respond, and we think it's us, but it's not really us at all. But That's when right. we turn from the um, uh, darkness, a light to darkness, then we're really doing battle with the third person of the Trinity, aren't we? The Holy Spirit? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, it's a form of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, absolutely. Um, yeah, very good point. By the way, Bob had mentioned that there's no contradictions in Scripture, and that's exactly right. When we look at passages like 2 Peter, where it appears that someone was a believer and turned back, we have to remember passages like John 10, 27, 
where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Remember, the construction in Greek there is a negation of the subjunctive mood. There's two different moods I want you to think about in Greek. There's more. But think about an indicative mood. An indicative mood is simply, simply stating a fact. I'm going to eat pizza. That's an indicative mood. But if I say, I would wish to, or I think in the future I will eat pizza, that shows a desire or a possibility. That's a subjunctive mood. In Matthew, or excuse me, John 10, 27, where Jesus says, they shall never perish, it's not just a negation of the indicative, it's a negation of the subjunctive. So it's the strongest way of negating the possibility of something. Don't glaze over. What Jesus is really saying is that there's not even a possibility of any future perishing. Do you see? So that's a, it's, it's actually stronger than saying, well, they won't perish. There's not even a possibility of any future perishing. There's not even the possibility of it. That's what John 10, 27 is saying. So here's what you have to do, knowing that this comes from God, is you have to say, wait, how can Jesus say that there's not even a possibility of believers ever perishing, and yet it appears in this passage that you have people who were believers who turned away, but then you read, notice 2 Peter 2.22, they return back to their own vomit to show that they were really a dog all along. And just as Bob was saying, we didn't know they were a dog. To us, they appeared that they were a genuine believer. Yeah, they, exactly. Yeah, they're very good. Yeah, they were a sheep. We thought they were a sheep. But in fact, they turned back to being a dog, and we didn't know that. So again, in God's eyes, he knew all along they were never his sheep, but we don't always know that. So again, what we're called to do is judge doctrine and deeds. We don't know who is an elect. We can't know that. We can't know the motives of the heart. Paul reveals that in 1 Corinthians 4. Only God knows that. But that will one day be revealed by God. He'll, he'll judge those things. But what we can judge is doctrine and deeds. And that's why the scriptures are so important. We're called to know objectively who Christ is, what he's done, his doctrines, his deeds. Okay, so let me just wrap this up then and conclude. When you look at all of the warning passages, they are real warnings. But I think we have to conclude that because genuine believers cannot perish, these warning passages are used by God in Scripture to keep us in the fold. Amen. Remember Bob's analogy? I loved it. Um, some slides back, I used it. It was the idea of the warning about do not come into this elevator shaft for it's empty, you'll fall to your death. And how many know in here that if you saw that sign, you would stay far away? And so that sign warning you, warning you of an empty elevator shaft can be 100% effective. In the same way, the warnings in Scripture are 100% effective for God's elect. Why? Because they shall never perish. Okay? So, with that, what I want to do is I want to open it up to questions. Now, i got some more slides. I'll wrap it up after this. But we had promised last week in the bulletin that we wanted to open up for any comments, questions. And it can be any of the doctrines that we've covered. I know we've thrown a lot. In fact, I had, up to this date, 50 slides in this presentation. But... Feel free to ask anything you want or comment or challenge, what, what have you. I wanted uh, to ask the first one. Okay, good. So then what's the answer to the question? Are we Calvinists? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, we're not. We're not Calvinists, but we do agree with Calvin. Again, and the whole reason I wanted to answer that question is when people ask, are you a Calvinist? They're really normally asking, do you believe in the doctrine of election? Because that's what Calvin was known for. So I would say, oh, yeah, Absolutely. 
I'm a Calvinist in that sense. But as we showed earlier, we don't believe in a lot of their doctrines. We have a different eschatology. We have a different uh, form of ecclesiology, the understanding of the church. We have a different form of sanctification oftentimes. We have a different understanding of the means of grace, baptism, how it functions. So we have a lot of differences. So we don't just follow Calvin blindly, but what I think we're doing here at Gospel of Grace is to say, look, when it comes to these doctrines, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, if they're properly explained and understood, we can say a hearty amen to them. Why? Because they follow from the scriptures. So we have a lot in common in those things. But again, in the other areas, we do not. So I would not call myself a Calvinist, but again, when people ask the question, what they're really oftentimes asking is, do you believe in the doctrine of election? And then I would say, yes, we do. Yep. So very good opening question. Yeah, I, I, I never came to the answer, did I? So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> very good, Bob. But does anyone have anything? I don't know if anyone had time to prepare anything from last week. Any comments, questions, class ideas? Christy. Um, well, I have two things. One is just a little comment, and I'm yeah. kind of, I don't want to read more into that passage, and um, so I read the context of it, um, and I, it sounds like it's really directed at sort of um, the way we live life and not returning to the old self and that sort of thing, yeah. but I'm kind of, I don't know, is there a little double entendre there with selecting like the food um, choices returning to law works. Yeah, I think you may be right. Uh, the false teachers I know that Peter is dealing with, by the way, are the same false teachers that Jude is dealing with. Mm-hmm. One of the things that they did is they did boundary crossing. They were those who were advocating that you could in, engage with the angelic realm. And the point that Peter and both Jude have to say is no, that's a form of boundary crossing. Whether or not they were teaching necessarily a return to the Mosaic Law, that's not exactly probably the point that Peter's making. Mm-hmm. But it is ironic that they're returning back to those things that were prohibited, as it were, at least the, the uh, idea of pigs. Mm-hmm. But here, the, the proverb, notice he uses dog. Well, the dog wasn't something that they would want to eat. So that's right. probably foreign to his idea here. Mm-hmm. He's just simply using the analogy of saying, look, these are unclean animals. So if you were formally thought of as clean, but your actions, you return back to your vomit to show that you're really unclean, it shows that you're really unregenerate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Does, that, does that help? Yep. Yeah, I just, yeah. I kind of wanted to, like, see if that was any accurate Yeah, no, very good question. Understanding. Um, and then this is something that we talk a lot about at home, um, kind of... Doing proper judging of um, the doctrinal side yeah. uh, with people in our lives, not necessarily always teachers, sometimes teachers. Right. Um, you know, how, how do we go about figuring out what's really critical and key? Because, you know, you address a person that appears to be a believer differently than an unbeliever in terms of sharing the gospel or sharing truth. And so... I don't know, do you have any thoughts on how, like, what's really important? <laughs> yeah, doctrinally. Where, where do we have to have commonality, and where are the things that we can differ on? And uh, one of the passages that always comes to my mind is 2 Corinthians 11. 
If you jot down 2 Corinthians 11, that's an important passage because there Paul warns about the Corinthians having a different Christ, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Now, the Spirit's role is not only to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16, 8, but also to bring people to saving faith in Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, no one can say Jesus, Lord, except by the Spirit. So here's the point. If the Spirit's role is to bring you to Christ, the big issue in 2 Corinthians 11 is do you have the true Christ? And I was just talking to Paul about this before our Sunday school. To me, the way that you can distort Christ is both in his person and in his work. Now, here's why I say that. A lot of times people will say, well, wait a minute, Eric. They're not claiming that Jesus isn't God, and they're not claiming, for example, that Jesus isn't human. They're not distorting his person. But let's think about how could you distort the work of Christ? Well, this is what the book of Colossians was all about. Remember, you had Christians at Colossae in Asia Minor. They began their Christian walk by trusting in Christ, but then they, were, they bought into this idea that Christ was not sufficient in order to provide for them during their daily lives. So the idea would be is if I'm concerned about my crops and I live in Asia Minor, I would tend to go to the angels and try to worship the angels, try to adjure the angels, to have the angels to protect me against the demons so that I'm going to have a bumper crop. Well, what's happened? That sounds, okay, big deal. They're not distorting who Christ is. They still believe he's God. They believe that he came as a human, but they are distorting his work. How? Well, Jesus isn't sufficient. He's not on the throne. He's not the one who's the provider for you. So do you see all of a sudden now they're departing from the sufficiency of Christ? And if Christ isn't sufficient to save you, to sanctify you, to keep you, to provide for you, you have a different Christ than the one of the Bible. That's precisely the problem with Roman Catholicism. They talk about who Christ is. They'll tell you that he's God. But yet, as soon as they're baptized, they believe their infants are saved. And as soon as they go into sin, then they enter into a form of works, whether it be penance, the meritorious works of the saints. One day if you die in your sin, it's purgatory. What does that say? It says Jesus his work is insufficient. So it's an attack on the work of Christ. So to boil it down, Christy, where we have to have commonality is in the person and the work of Christ. Um, and so we, if someone says, like a Jehovah Witness, I don't believe Jesus is God, we can't have fellowship with them. That's an attack on his person. But if someone says, you know, I believe that Jesus saves, but I also believe that I have to do these penance in order to be right, now they're attacking his work. We have to have commonality in the person and the work of Christ. So that's the way I like to put it. And um, a good way of thinking about some of the doctrinal standards that we have to hold to is also the five solas of the Reformation. Any attack on the saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, all by God's grace alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, all for the glory of God alone, an attack on any of those is going to be an attack on the gospel itself. So person and work of Christ and the five solas, those really come from Scripture, and they can be defended from Scripture. So again, very good question, because it gets us to the idea of what are we judging? We're judging doctrine and deeds, and it's connected to those things. Yeah, very good. Uh, yeah, Mike's got something. Norm. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Norm's got something? Uh, good to see you, Norm, again, yeah, by the way. Yeah, just to add on a little bit more to what uh, Christy is talking about. Yeah. 
Um, there are, I mean, we, we have many Christian friends, and some of them go to a similar church that we have and believe the same thing. We have others that are truly Christians, but they go to a different form of church. They maybe have a different uh, style of baptism. Their worship service is set differently. They believe in the you know, liturgy style. But where do we draw the line between what is essential in us to have fellowship with other Christians and what yeah. are and what they can be different. We probably wouldn't get along good in the same church, but we can certainly consider them brothers and sisters in the Lord and have fellowship with them right. in, in that sense. And then there are things, well, I'll just leave it at that, yeah. Yeah, no, very good question, uh, Norm. So let's say you have uh, relatives that go to a litur- liturgical church. Um, I, I grew up, I was Lutheran, and the problem with my Lutheran church that I went to as a kid wasn't that they had liturgy, it was that they didn't believe the liturgy. And I think that's one of the big issues is you, you can say, well, I don't really like liturgy, or someone can say, I like liturgy, and that can be a stylistic difference. But the point is, is that liturgy confessing the person and work of Christ accurately? And if so, is it really believed? And that's one of the problems that I saw in the ELCA church, is they didn't really believe the liturgy that they had. The liturgy words, by and large, were good. So what I would say is, don't divide over liturgy necessarily with a relative unless they don't believe a lick of the liturgy. And obviously the liturgy would have to be something consistent with the person and work of Christ. Oftentimes it is. So the real issue isn't whether they have liturgy or not, it's whether they believe the terms of it. So the issue is always belief. And uh, for example, I have a relative who they'll talk about Christ. They'll even study the book of Colossians. They'll think they get it right. But uh, this particular pastor that one of my relatives goes to he gets to Colossians 2. Remember in Colossians 2, Norm, you have Jesus Christ paying our debt so that the rulers and the powers that were making accusations against us, they have nothing to say because it was nailed to the cross. Remember we're talking about in Colossians 2, 11 through 15? Well, this guy takes that and he makes it a polemic against capital punishment. So what has he done? Is He's taken a passage about the finished work of Christ. It's about the work of Christ. And he's saying this passage isn't about the work of Christ. It's about the work of man. And the reason he wants to do that is he's a follower of Marx. He doesn't like capital punishment because the Marxists are going to beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into printing hooks. They're the ones who are going to do that through their own efforts. So capital punishment isn't necessary now. So do you see then that's a distortion of the person and work of Christ. It's an attack on his work. They won't preach it. I can't have any fellowship with that. If you're going to take a passage about the work of Christ and say it's really about the work of men, I can't have fellowship with you. So there's a lot of deceitful ways that it can happen, but it really always boils down to an attack on the person and work of Christ. Yeah, yeah, very good question. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Mike, you had something. Well, Norm basically asked my question, and it was like, when we think about Reformed theology, yeah. teach like R.C. Sproul, and, and we differ in baptism yeah. know, and that type of thing. And I think that may be what Norm was kind of getting to, to litur- liturgical churches. Um, yeah. That, and then uh, uh, the doctrine of free will. You know, these yeah. people are believers, and they love Christ, and but... <laughs> Baptism, if they say baptism saves, that's distorting the work of Christ. That's right. right. 
And uh, we know that the doctrine of free will, where we choose and not them, that's a slippery slope. Absolutely. You know, and so we just, we're, we're brothers with them. We need to love them. We can't, we shouldn't be haughty right. in how we address them. But I suppose we're just supposed to look for opportunities to try and uh, enlighten them to what we believe, yeah. you know, and we know is, is scriptural and biblical. And when, another thing, I just wanted another comment. When people ask me if I'm, if I'm a Calvinist, I always say, well, I, I always said, even before I had learned a lot here, I said, he taught a lot of different doctrines, so yeah. I think you really mean the doctrine of election. Right. So, I, uh, you know, uh, I like to say I'm, I'm a biblical or scriptural Christian, but yes. then people think that you're being all haughty then, too, <laughs> you know? So I know. It's kind of a no-win situation, but, That's yeah, it, it's tough with people like R.C. Sproul and, and, you know, that, uh, but baptism saving is a problem. Martin Luther and everything else, so... I don't know how we, how we handle that in a, Absolutely. In, a, in a good, kind way. Yeah. yeah, you know, think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. He says, I'm glad I didn't baptize except for the house of Stephanus. He mentions a few that he did baptize. Well, think about this. If baptism saves, then Paul is saying, I'm glad I didn't save any of you. Is he not? And then, in fact, right after that, he says, but I was sent to preach the gospel. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so to your point... That could be a, a, a deal breaker. If someone really believes that baptism saves, that is not trusting in the work of Christ. It really is. It's a distortion. Now, in saying that, when you looked at the Reformed tradition, the Reformed tradition believes, uh, and I'm talking uh, di differing with the Lutherans, the Reformed tradition believes that an uh, infant is to be baptized because there's a one-to-one -one correlation between circumcision of the Old Testament and baptism of the New the problem with that is the passage they use to prove that actually proves the opposite. And we talked about that's in Colossians 2 where Paul talks about the circumcision of Christ. He says a circumcision not with hands. So whatever he's talking about, he's actually talking about circumcision of the heart. It, it can't be physical circumcision. So it actually makes the point opposite of the Reformed tradition. So in that case, what you'll often find from men like R.C. Sproul is they will be ardent supporters of your saved by faith alone. But then all of a sudden when it comes to baptism, they end up having to do a lot of equivocation where, well, yeah, the infants are baptized, they're not really saved, but they become partakers of this new covenant reality. Well, they don't. <laughs> but So, yeah, there's issues. But here's the big thing I would say with R.C. Sproul. He's been a staunch defender of the idea that we're saved by faith alone. When it comes to baptism and some of these other ideas, yeah, he's wrong, but I think we have to fight those on those terms. I think we can agree that, yes, salvation's by faith alone, um, and then argue about the other issues with them. Same thing with eschatology. So, yeah, um, it, it's, it's problematic, but um, the, the, basically what you're doing is you're dealing with someone who is, doesn't have a coherent biblical worldview. On the one hand, you say it's by faith alone. On the other hand, you're saying, well, infants are kind of in the, in the covenant because they're baptized. It's not coherent. But we don't have to necessarily shun someone and say they're not a believer because they're incoherent at that point. They do. I think we do have to shun them if they say salvation's anything other than through faith alone and Christ alone. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry. Back there. So uh, I yeah. realize this is not an opposite of are you a Calvinist, but how would you answer are you a dispensationalist? And yeah. you don't need to do 50 more slides yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and I won't thank you. Very good question. You know, I, um, I have a lot of affinity towards dispensationalism. 
Um, I don't ever call myself a dispensationalist either. I have a lot of affinity, and a lot of people, they sh- they're shocked by that because I have so similar eschatology. And if you think about it, God did work throughout history in different dispensations. He just has. He, he worked one way before the fall, one way after the fall, one way before the flood, after the flood, before the Mosaic Covenant, after the Mosaic Covenant, um, now under the New Covenant. So he certainly has operated differently throughout salvation history. The one thing that I'll say about Reformed theology or Covenant theology, I, I, I disagree with them in the sense that everything should be under the rubric of either the Covenant of Works or Covenant of Grace. But I will say there's consistency throughout the covenants in that if you want to please God, it has to be by faith alone. Amen. So Abraham is justified by faith. He looked forward to Christ in the cross. You and I are justified by faith. We look back to the work of the cross. He looked forward, we look back, same faith, same savior, same salvation. Same thing with the Israelite. The Israelite who was saved under the old covenant was saved by faith. And that's why, remember in Isaiah chapter 1, God could say when he was upset with them because they were coming to him in rote rather than by the heart. And he could tell them in Isaiah chapter 1, and I'm being, I'm paraphrasing, but take your sacrificial animals and stick them in your ear. Now think about that for just a moment. That was commanded under the Mosaic Covenant. And if the, if the sacrificial animals necessarily saved, how could God say that? Well, certainly they did not. And even in Leviticus, Leviticus 17, Leviticus 7, you see the idea that atonement came from Yahweh. So the Israelite who was saved trusted in Yahweh, knowing one day he's going to pay the penalty. And the sacrificial system was a down payment of that. It was a foreshadowing that you and I are commanded to do the Lord's Supper, knowing that the Lord's Supper in and of itself doesn't save. It's my trust in Jesus Christ. We're trusting in Yahweh. Remember, he says, before Abraham was, I am. So throughout all the dispensations, salvation has always been the same. There wasn't one plan of salvation, and all of a sudden God changed it. Older dispensationalists used to say that. They don't now. The very, the, for the last 150 years, dispensationalism has gotten over that. But years back, many dispensationalists will say, well, the Jews had one form of salvation, and that changed to a different form of salvation. In fact, a modern-day proponent of that is John Hagee. John Hagee, I love the guy politically, but theologically we depart, we depart ways, which is the most important issue, because he will try to claim, well, a Jew is in the kingdom simply because he's a Jew. And one day he's going to find out that Jesus is the Messiah, What I'm saying is no. It doesn't matter if you're born Jew or Gentile. If you don't come to faith in Jesus Christ during this life, you will perish. That's what the scripture teaches. So, again, I wish I could tell you that I'm firmly a dispensationalist. I agree with them on a lot of uh, their eschatology, etc. But um, I'm often careful to just say, look, I just want to go according to the scriptures. I won't link myself either covenantal or dispensationalist. There's a little bit of a hybrid in me. So I hope that helps. But I have a lot of affinity towards dispensationalism. Let me put it that way. So very good question. Yeah. Um, hey, first time making a comment. Um, I, I love this discussion. It helps me a lot. I do good. go to a, um, I come here, but I also go to a liturgical church. Yeah. And um, closer, louder. There yeah. we go. Um, so relationship, fellowship. And then you mentioned shunning. 
and, um, and under what conditions would you shun people from a tradition that's close and but not exactly fully in agreement? Um, yeah. Because I, I heard relationship is possible, right, with people yeah. who may not be in fellowship, but then they're shunning. So maybe you could just help me. Yeah, let me explain what I mean by shunning is what I'm claiming is true fellowship always happens under the means of grace. In fact, when we look at Acts 2.42, the early church devoted themselves to four things. It was the Lord's Supper. It was the breaking of bread. It was the apostles' teaching. It was fellowship and prayer. Fellowship was the arena in which all those other things occurred. So true biblical fellowship isn't just that we go out bowling. Um, or it's not just that we go, I like to shoot pistols, and a lot of us guys like to shoot together. That's technically not just fellowship. What fellowship is, is where Christians gather under the means of grace, the other ones, the Lord's Supper, the teaching of the Word, and prayer. Here's my point, is if someone doesn't believe in the same Christ that I believe in, I really don't have true fellowship. So it's not the shunning in the sense that I won't talk to them on the street or I will somehow, um, I'm gassing my car and I see them and I just will, you know, try to get away from them. It's not that kind of shunning. It's the kind of that I won't have, I, I know I don't have fellowship with them. Okay, in fact, there's times um, where I'll be um, perhaps more long-suffering with some of them simply because I want them to come to Christ. Oftentimes I see this at the workout club. I'll be long-suffering with them. They'll, they'll throw out some really weird ideas and I'll listen and just show that, look, I appreciate you as a person made in the image of God. I don't agree with you, but I'm, I'm long-suffering with you. I want the best for you. But what I'm talking about shunning is simply to, it's not a good term. I shouldn't have used that. It's just the idea that I don't have fellowship with them because they don't have the person and work of Christ. Now, just because you go to a liturgical church doesn't mean you don't have the person and work of Christ correctly. You can believe the liturgy if it's biblical liturgy, and I can say you're a sister in the Lord. So that's the issue is whether or not you and I have the same doctrine of the person and work of Christ and that you're trusting in his sufficiency. If that's the case, you're a sister of mine. And so we have fellowship in that sense. So does, does that help? Very good, yeah. Very good question. I'm sorry. You know, sometimes we, uh, I catch myself saying something that you don't realize all the connotations behind shunning, for example. So thank you for pointing that out. Very good. Yeah. Uh, anyone else? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, back there. Jen. I think um, my comment is going to kind of piggyback what Christy had said about judging, especially like family members. We have a, a relative that um, claims to be Christian, yes. but they engaged in a blatant sin, and we confronted them and asked them two times to uh, justify biblically why they were continuing in sin, and they refused to even meet with us. Yeah. And so we no longer fellowship with them. And I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 9 through 13. Yep. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, meaning non-Christians, or with the covetous um, and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, yeah. not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? 
but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And it's, it's brought go. division in our, our family, but yes. it's like, you know, if you confront, it's like church discipline. You have that to is church discipline. In fact, you're exactly right, Jen. And if they refuse, it's like, well, we're not going to just give you a wink and a nod because you're our relative right. and you're nice. Or we just won't do it. But, yeah. it, you know, it hurts. Yeah, absolutely. So let's set the context for 1 Corinthians 5. It's a great passage to bring up because it ties into this. When do we have fellowship and when do we do not? When, when don't we? First of all, the context of 1 Corinthians 5 is there's an immoral man that's within the church and he's having his own father's wife to be his own. So he's committing sexual immorality. The problem with the church at Corinth is they didn't do anything about it. They didn't put him under discipline. So that's what's incensing him. So what Paul is advocating is church discipline. In fact, the phrase, have nothing to do with them, don't even eat with such a one. The eating that Paul has in mind is the idea of the Lord's Supper. So they are to be disfellowshipped then. So ironically, what you have is, notice Paul says, I didn't say that of the immoral in the world, for you'd have to go outside the world. So in other words, Paul isn't saying that you shun, as it were, every unbeliever, but it's somebody who is claiming the right to sin in the church of God. We have nothing to do with them. No, they're outside. And that's what church discipline is for. So think about this. I, I know this is, sounds kind of crass, but it's a helpful analogy. The means of grace that God gives, can, I'd like to think of it as like a burger, okay? You have a top bun and a bottom bun. The top bun is baptism. You don't dedicate yourself to it. You do it once, once and for all. If you do it over and over, it defeats the purpose. The Israelites weren't baptized over and over through the Red Sea. It was one time. There's no going back. So after that, then you have the four means of grace that you're de- de- devoted to. The Lord's Supper, the Apostles' Teaching, which is the Word of God, prayer and fellowship. That's the burger, the bottom bun is something that's needed only if necessary, and that's church discipline. And the idea with church discipline is it's taking a Christian who's claiming the right to sin, saying Christ is no longer Lord, and what you are saying is the leadership of the church and of the church at large, no, that will not be tolerated. If you're going to sin with a high hand, by the way, sinning with a high hand is saying, I know that this is sin, I know that the Lord Jesus has declared to be sin, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. That's the person that church discipline is reserved for. So if you come in here and you say, you know, I really blew it this week. I I sinned in this way and that way, and I don't want to do that anymore. Church discipline isn't for you because you're not claiming the right to sin. You don't want to do that. Church discipline is reserved for the people who are claiming the right to do it. And that would exactly fit, it sounds like, the scenario of this relative. They're claiming the right to do that. That's the problem, sinning with the high hand, as it was called in the Old Testament. Does that help, Jen, kind of clarify the... Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, Bob. The reason that applies is it was objective. Yes, very but good. I was just thinking, of, I've got a couple passages in my mind yeah. that I don't have a concordance with me to find them. Yep. But in one case, it says, do not go on passing judgment before the time, yeah. but wait until the Lord returns. Yeah, that's the First Corinthians 4, right. Well, well yeah, there you go. Yeah, you know the good. Bible better than me. No, no, no. I know it was in there. Right, right. Uh, so when it comes to things we don't know, yeah. we're not supposed to judge before the time means at the end. Exactly. So the unseen motive, what's going to, the motives of the heart yeah. are not known to other humans. Only God knows. Amen. Okay. So that was that case. Now, in the case of fellowship, there's a passage that says, do not have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Yes. Again, I can't tell you what verse it is. 
Yeah. But it is in the Bible. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, what's so essential is that the church is taught the Word of God with clarity and forthrightness yeah. so that the body of Christ is equipped to be able to deal with difficult situations because we all are going to have them. Yeah. Everybody. It's not possible to get through this life without having difficult situations. And the more difficult it is, the more we need one another and we need our hearts filled with clear, sound truth yeah. from the Bible. Right. And um, so we're kind of distinguishing between what we can know yes. and what's revealed and what we cannot know that has to wait until the end. Amen. Okay, so the not having fellowship has to do with what is known. Yes, very good. And that's why we can't do the ecumenism. Somebody over the Internet that I ran into yeah. who read one of my articles said, well, anybody who believes in Jesus, that's fellowship. I said, really? Um, okay, so the Mormons believe in Jesus, but their Jesus is the half-brother of Satan. Oh, well, I guess that's a problem. <laughs> okay, so it's... <laughs> Yeah, that's We've got to have a couple of definitions. Right, right. Okay, because it does talk about another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Yes. So we get clear definitions, but we don't want to be harsh and isolated like a cult. Yeah. But we want to be forthright about what we believe yeah. and try to help people understand the issues. That's right. And like what you mentioned, R.C. Sproul. Yeah. I honestly think a lot of people feel like they need to join something and if they're in a great big movement with a really long history yes they feel like they can't do anything outside of that yes yeah and so if you're in this great big movement with a real long history and they practice infant baptism but you love being there well you're gonna to have to decide whether you think what are you gonna do about it that's right okay well i know what i'd do i'd get out yeah <laughs> i mean i would exit that's right because I think that's a denial of the gospel. Yeah. But they don't feel that way. Yeah. Why? Because they're saying, if they're saying baptism saves you, that's wrong. If they're saying election is genetic, so anybody who's born into a Christian family is therefore Christian, that that's true, that's also blatantly false. Yeah. If they're saying, they might say, well, we don't believe this either saves or makes somebody a Christian, but we do it as something we would take as a liberty to make in hopes that at some point this right. person will believe. Yeah. I think th that might be a little different. Yeah. I would then say, okay, maybe you should adjust your terminology. Yes. And, right. and look at the Bible about what baptism really does signify. Right, right. But so those difficult questions still have to be asked and we still have to interact. But saying that, I'm not saying that people like R.C. Sproul weren't genuine right? because he did believe in infant baptism. And I'm not saying about, about any of my Lutheran friends who I have. I, I think it's just so hard to get out of that huge, big, monolithic, 500-year, this is us. I love Lutheran. I cite him all the time. Yeah. And he actually believed baptism saves. Right. Uh, 
So learn what you can from who you can, but That's right. there's going to be some problems. Yeah, amen. Well said, Bob. Yeah, very good. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm sorry. Oh, I get. I, I just have a, a comment about yeah. Anne's um, kind of uh, comments and question. Yeah. Um, one of the areas, the Lord's Supper, to me, became significant years ago. And I, I think I was a Christian before that, but I was an ignorant Christian. I was a biblically ignorant Christian sure. um, in many ways. And so I would say things like, well, I can participate in um, Catholic communion because I don't believe that, but for me it means this. Sure. And there was a point where I was really struggling with it, and I was praying a lot about it, and the Lord placed on my heart a really strong conviction that I should not participate in that. Yeah. And so to me that, that was like in my life an example of where the line became pretty clear. Yeah, no, very good. So here you're differing with the Catholics in their understanding of the gospel and the Lord's Supper. To the, to the Catholic Church, they believe in something called transubstantiation. And the doctrine of transubstantiation, the idea is that Christ actually is in the element itself. So what they they'll, they'll claim this is a bloodless sacrifice, but in a sense, they're re-sacrificing Christ every week then when they have the Mass. And this is um, the point of the Lord's Supper. So the problem with that, of course, is we have a Christ who's been sacrificed once and for all. Bob did a good job teaching us the book of Hebrews, the term hapox, once and never again. So you realize, Christy, that, look, I can't keep re-sacrificing Christ with these people in this ceremony I'm in a sense then a partaker of an idol's table that Paul warned about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm not going to be a partaker of a table of demons and the table of the Lord at the same time, the same relationship. You can only do one or the other. And that's exactly the challenge that Paul throws out. Now in saying that, let's say we have table fellowship in the sense of the Lord's Supper with someone who agrees with us on the Lord's Supper but has a different understanding of eschatology or what have you that we can have genuine differences in some things and still have fellowship. So, But you were very discerning in saying, no, this, this fellowship is with a different Christ. And again, it was an attack on the person and the work of Christ. Bob just talked about a Mormon. What do the Mormons do? They attack the person of Christ. They also, by the way, attack his work. So you're right. You saw that perceptively and say, I can't have fellowship with that. Yeah, well said. I tell you what, great questions, great comments. Let me leave you with this. I want to talk about one thing I want you to think about as we go out. <clears throat> to me, when you look at the doctrines of TULIP, that's what we finished off on. The doctrine of total depravity to me is essential for a Christian to know. Now, the reason I say that is I'm not claiming those who deny original sin are necessarily heretics, but what I will claim is that it leads to a lot of problems, oftentimes heresy. So I don't know if you recall, but I've given you this slide in the beginning where we're talking about different views of original sin. In other words, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did it lead to? And the big thing I wanted you to think about was the extent of its ramifications upon the human being. Notice here, above the line, Pelagian, Arminian, and Semi-Pelagian, they believe that human beings are still alive or just weakened, meaning human beings spiritually can still do something in order to contribute to their salvation. They can still reach up and trust in Jesus Christ using their own power. But notice everything below the line, whether it's the realist, seminal, or the federal position, the extent of sin from Adam and Eve is such that we're dead in our trespasses. Just as Paul said we are, 
in Ephesians 2.1. If that is true, if you are spiritually dead, what that means is you don't have the ability to do anything that's pleasing to God. That's what Romans 8.8 says. So let me keep going. Do we see this idea of inability? I want you to come away with this. If there's one idea that you come away from this whole message, it's the inability of man. Why is that important? Because it will drive you to the only answer, which is the ability of God, that salvation is only by his power. Romans 3, 10 through 11. Remember Paul said, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. When it talks about none, remember throughout our discussion, we distinguish between the idea of all or none, meaning this is universal. It has to do with all people, but is it all people without exception or all people without distinction? Sometimes God says that he desires all to come to faith. We talk about the all there would be all without distinction, meaning both Jews and Gentiles. But here, the none, meaning all, this refers to all people. It's all people without exception. There's not one person that doesn't fall within this category. There's not one. There's not one person who seeks after God. So the question then is, is what do you do with passages like in Psalm 69, 32, where it talks about those who seek God are going to be rewarded. Well, if no human being seeks after God, and yet some passages declare that human beings are seeking him, that would seem to be an apparent contradiction. The way out of that is to realize that God first seeks his people. And when he deposits his spirit within them, then they are rightly enabled to seek him. That's the only way out of that impasse. But I want you to see is that this none seeking after God is real. Paul infers by that that there's not one human being that's able to do that. And that's why when you get to Romans 8.8, 8, it says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Who are those in the flesh? It's those who are outside of Christ, unregenerate by the Spirit. They cannot please God. And how can you please God? Remember in Hebrews 11? The only way to please God is what? It's by faith. So if you can't please God, it means you can't come to faith. Those who are outside of regeneration, outside of Christ... They can't do anything pleasing. That's the inability of man. This is why you remember in Matthew, and I just have one more slide after this, and we'll, we'll, we'll pray. But in Matthew 19, 24 through 26, remember you had the rich man, and Jesus said, sell all that you have. By the way, he doesn't tell every one of you to sell all that you have. This was this man's issue. So don't think that you're going to have to just go out right away and start selling off all your possessions. That's what he commanded this one man, and he wouldn't do it. Isn't it interesting? The Lord himself was speaking to him. The real issue is he didn't recognize that he was the Lord. So in Matthew 19, 24 through 26, Jesus is rebuking this man and saying, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. That's where we pick it up here. Jesus says, again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Notice the disciples catch wind of this. They think, well, that's impossible. They're right. Verse 25, they say, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? Notice in bold, what's the issue? Who can be saved? Who can be saved if it's that difficult? Notice how Jesus answers. He says, looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. Notice the term impossible, adunitas. There is no ability. Why? Because you're born a dead sinner. None seek after God, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. It is impossible with man. Salvation is impossible. Why? Because you're born a dead sinner in Adam. So Jesus says, but, there's the divine but, but with God all things are possible. Salvation is only of God. 
And if there's one thing that you come away with from all of this that I've thrown at you, it's the inability of man, but the ability of God. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. Let me just leave you with this last thing with ramifications. There's a story that actually Mike Bliss told me last week, and it was shocking to me. I was unaware of it. So how many in here have heard that in Redding, California, this modern-day Apostles and Prophets Church were praying to raise from the dead this two-year-old that had died? Think about why they're doing that. It's because they don't believe in the inability of man. Let me explain why. John 14, 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. So notice Jesus promising that we're going to do greater works than he's going to do. Now, here's the two possibilities. If you believe that conversion is a natural event, what do I mean by natural event? You have the ability to believe. It's not supernatural because you're contributing to it. If you're contributing to your salvation, it is not a supernatural event, and therefore it's not miraculous. Therefore, what you say, hey, Jesus promised that I'm going to do greater miracles than he's going to do, salvation isn't one of them because that's a natural event. Therefore, I have to go out and do miracles. I'm going to raise two-year-olds from the dead. But once you believe in the inability of man, you believe now conversion is a supernatural event. Every time someone turns to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, it is absolutely 100% a supernatural event on the par with the splitting of the Red Sea, creation itself. That's how big a deal it is. So then when Jesus says, greater works than these will you do, all of a sudden you realize that as you have the gospel upon your lips, you're participating in the miraculous salvation of God. That you're a participant, those are the greater works. So therefore, you don't have to worry about raising the two-year-old from the dead. You don't have to try to have an axe head float in water. That was a miracle from the Old Testament. You don't have to do these things. Why? Because you know conversion itself is a miraculous event that only God does. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the importance of knowing the inability of man. If you don't have that doctrine down, it will lead to so many problems theologically in your life later on. The inability of man, the total ability of God. Please come away from this message with that. Let me just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these people. I thank you so much, Lord, that you've called them out of darkness to belong to the kingdom of your beloved Son. I thank you for each one here. I do pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say through your scriptures, that you would give us not confusion, but confidence that we can know the truth cogently. I I do pray that as we hear Bob's sermon today, that you continue to help educate us about what you expect from us. We do pray, Lord, that these great truths would settle upon us so that we would never depart from Christ, that we would always remain with his doctrine and remain in his deeds. We pray that you do that through us and for us, all for the sake of your great name, your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.